he is. Oh, hey. Oh, hey. My goodness. Let me get my calories in. Yeah, get those in. I have dropped it down to 176. To what? Wait, what? He's, uh, I'm losing my pandemic weight. Oh. <laughs> but what do you mean, 176? Pounds. How much he weighs. Oh. Yeah. Do you one, do like a calorie count or something? Yeah, or? I just put in everything. So there's this app. You want for the show? We'll put it on. We'll put it on. Put it on. Tape. Yeah. See what happens. Ready? Yeah. What do you want to do first, Go buddy? Go open. Yeah. This is a production of Dirty Mo Media. Yeah, so, Matthew, you're asking me what 176 is. Well, that's what I weighed this morning. I, um, like a lot of, like a lot of people probably didn't do a good job of taking care of myself in the pandemic. And uh, I kind of get, I got up to 188, um, which is pretty high for me. I have a, uh, I have a hole in my belt. That's where I'm going to stay. I wear 33s, I don't wear 32s, and I don't wear 34s. And so when things start getting a little weird and tight down there, and I've got to get into another hole in that belt, <laughs> things got to get serious. So <laughs> about, listen to this, man. About 13 years ago, I was talking to TJ and Mike, and they were like, oh, yeah, we're, we're losing some weight. Oh, this is going way back. Oh, yeah. Talking about that conversation. Why, well, that's why I'll tell you why I know it's 13 years. So they're like, oh, yeah, there's this app on on uh, on my phone. On our phone, it's called Lose It. Look, I got nothing to do with these people. Let me finish this. How many calories was that? This is a... Uh, <laughs> did, you pl- did you just, did you just did you plug count that swig? Yeah. Mike, it's this whole can right here is 10. 10 calories. I've been... TJ saw, put me on them. 10 calories. Were you drinking this last week too? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, people mistaking this for rowdy energy. Yeah. Yeah, it looks a lot like the He rowdy. had a koozie. Good yep. for Kyle. And uh, they were like, <laughs> Dale Jr.'s drinking that. They didn't know what to do with that information. Nah. Well, we should get some. That really spin them out. Because <laughs> I drank the orange rowdy and it's not, it's it's not good. good. Yeah. Is it? Nothing yeah. wrong with it. Not at all. I drank, to jump on another subject. Yeah, I drank some of Kyle's energy drink and he's got a great product. That's cool. All right, so you Anyhow, going back to 13 so, years ago, conversation with me and TJ. There's this app called Lose It, all right? And you can type in what you're eating, and, uh, you know, it'll give you a rough estimate. You never know whether you're dead. You know, we're talking about a plate of food here. It can't tell you exactly what calories are in that plate of food, but it'll say, hey, if it's six ounces of fried chicken, this is typically, you know, here's, here, here's your macros. I don't really worry about the macros that much, but here's the calories. So you can tell this app, say, look, I want to lose... I want to weigh this much. Get me there. And I want to lose this much each week. Say two pounds is probably the, the most aggressive you want to go. And you don't have to exercise or nothing, right? Well, it helps. Of course it helps, Mike, but you don't have to exercise. So this is basically just saying, this is basically just saying, here's how many calories you can eat a day. We're going to help you. Uh, split it up into meals, and all right, so try to stay under 350 for breakfast. Try to stay under 500 for lunch. Here's a 200-calorie snack in the afternoon 
Uh, and so you gotta you gotta find those meals. You gotta find you know you can't go to the store and just order what you want. You gotta find things that are in that in that little you know in that in that uh, amount of calories. And so uh, which ain't hard to do. Um, anyways, and while and so that's also another thing right? when you're trying to you know you learn how many calories are in six or five or four ounces of fried chicken or grilled chicken or a steak. You figure you understand when you. You know, when you're not able to count your calories and you got to go out to a function and you sit down in front of a plate of food, you can pretty much guess what you're looking at by using this app over a period of time. You sort of learn how much stuff is, right? And it helps you understand, like, yeah, well, without this app or any kind of guardrails, I I can see how I could get off, you know, get get off the rails and eat a bunch of calories without even knowing it, right? Right. Have a 1,500-calorie day. Yeah, undisciplined man, you can run amok. You can yeah. go crazy. Yeah, fifteen hundred calories actually is 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 very small. But you could eat fifteen hundred a meal, right? So what's like a target anyway, number? I don't. So get, like, so uh, it's a great question. So for everybody, it's different. You're going to type in your size and all that, and it, if you want to lose a pound a week, half a pound a week, whatever it is, right? It's going to tell you, okay, here's your here's the most calories you need to eat, and you can go over that because you're going to go under some days. Some days you're just not going to get that, you know, many calories. You'll be surprised when you're really trying. It's not, I'm not sitting here at the end of the day going, oh, barely squeezed it in, or man, I almost went over, or I'm going to have to starve these last five hours of the day because I'm at the limit. It never really happens. Mm-hmm. If you're just smart about what you're putting, you know, putting on your plate, fried stuff is going to have more calories. Don't eat it. Soft drinks are not probably something you want to put on that list because that's going to eat up maybe a third of your calories. <laughs> yeah. You know, so do you, are you counting beer? All right. So you used to not count beer. I used to not I didn't I used to so we I've been on this. I've had this app on my phone for 13 years. Mike oh. and TJ were losing weight using this app. I jumped on it so we can we buddied up so I can see what they're doing. They can see what I'm doing. So we were sort of holding each other accountable. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. They went away from it. I went away from it. I wait about three years later. I'm like, up oh, here I am. Belt's tight. Waist is tight. Uh, crank up the lose it app. And I went right back to it and lost the weight again. And I don't know how many times I've done that over a 13 year period, but I've probably went to this app probably four times to knock off 10 or 15 pounds. And here I am in the middle of doing that again. I started at 188, and I'm down to 176, and I want to go to 172. 172 is just kind of a number that I always weighed when I was younger. Kind of, that's just kind of where I was. That's it. That's, I just pick a number, right? Doesn't make any sense, and it had to make sense. I've had this app for so long, I can actually see my graph from thir- for over a 13-year period, right, of gaining weight, losing it, gaining weight, losing it. Does it look like a, is it like a mountain range? Yeah. I'll show it to you, man. <laughs> It, that's what it does. I mean, I remember that. It's like you got there. It is peaks and valleys. Yeah, yours isn't too bad. Go, wait, wait. That's the thirteen years. That's right thirteen there? years. Wow. Yeah, you do drop off for a while. I mean, you do get away from it for a while. Yeah. So I mean, I, I'm I'm I got. I'm sorry, it's not thirteen years. January two thousand thirteen was when okay. we all well, started this, and I was one eighty four. I was one eighty four. I got below one seventy two, and then I came back to the app in two thousand eighteen. The year I retired, all right, from racing, I was doing great because we were biking all the time in 2017. And then and in 2018, I'm like, hmm, need to figure out how to lose a little weight. So Without do you, that racing, I was gaining it all back. 
do you remember how bad we used to eat on the road? Like just on it well, before we were into this uh, um, fitness stuff, before biking, before lose it. Do you remember how bad we would eat? Between, you're, are you plugging in information right now? No, I'm not. Sorry, you, I'm listening to you. What would I say? You know how bad we used to eat on the road. <laughs> do you I know? Do you know how bad we used to eat on the road? How you, bad, you said it Dale. twice. He said it twice. How bad. So the, I've for the longest time I can't even remember. Um, I mean, you will remember, but I when I go on the road, I eat chicken or sal- salmon. Yeah, but before that, I eat before chicken, Amy, before Amy, um, man, we had Taco Day. Remember yes, Taco Tuesday or, oh, yeah. or was it Taco Friday? What was it, Taco Friday? Yeah, and then there was the oh uh, my god, oh yeah. There I mean, you just eat all you could eat. Brats. Brats, yes, you see brats all the time. All Damn, the time. we you, did. <laughs> you, you, we would eat a full day's worth of calories just in that brats meal. Oh my gosh, you're right. And because think about all the sun drops we drank too. Tons of sun drops. God, not a thought one minute about counting calories, how much this is. None of that. We weren't even caring. I right? remember the moment it changed for you in Daytona when you have to go away and they they redid the fan zone, mm-hmm. and so now like fans can watch the the scales. And so drivers at Daytona would have to go stand on that scale, and it was like a boxing match, like a pre, like a pre-fight deal where you know, you, you know, you, you weigh in, and the crowd would start reacting to the numbers, like it would flash your weight right there in front of everybody, a very public thing. And uh, man, I think you were dreading going over there one time, and I don't even remember what the number was, but you were like, "This, we gotta." We got to stop this. This is this is not. You know what it was for me. The first, I think, the first time I really kind of thought, man, I got to get better shape, was I did this commercial with Danica at mm. Charlotte, mm. and at the end of commercial, I'm wearing some kind of tan jacket and I'm driving a truck. I can't remember exactly what the theme of the commercial is to help people out to point people to it, but I'm looking at myself going, "Good lord, mm. that was it, blowed up." <laughs> It's bad. The LBs. Yeah. Oh, and then you got to be on a, on a commercial with Danica to make it worse. That would be like 10 times worse, right? But you're right. I don't count drinking, and I still don't. So, Well, that that's the one part I... Uh, well, this is one thing I ain't ready to... I, look, I'm not ready to give up beer. Well, you shouldn't give up beer. You should count it. No. <laughs> you can't possibly do that. Of course you can do it. Nope. You'll, you absolutely could possibly count the calories in a if you drink a mid ultra, ninety five calories. It, keep, Mike, it keeps you you don't disciplined. you all right. So that's it's not going to work for me because I'm going to sit down. Yes, like yesterday I sat down and drank eight beers. Nice over the course of the day. Okay, you know that I'm not going to count that. How's that any you're, different saying, I'm going to eat chocolate cake today? I'm just not going to count Well, if it. you're drinking Bud Lights, it's 96 calories of beer. So that's 800 calories almost, or, you know, mm-hmm. 750 calories. That's half, almost half of your allotted. Right. Yeah. That's, I think that's my point. That's. Yeah, I don't count it. I don't. Look, it's my rules, man. <laughs> it's my damn diet. It's my rules. I understand that, but you understand that. Uh, I'm still losing the weight. It still counts. <laughs> Listen, I understand. Because, That's my point. Just because Listen, it's not body in your just decides, Oh, wait, we're not going to count this? No, I understand <laughs> what you guys are saying about it, but I do not count the beers. I'm not, look, I can, I'm not disciplined or, <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm lazy. 
Like, I'm not going to go in there and go, well, yep, there's number three. Let me type that one in. Uh, okay, number six, add that one. Okay. I'm not going to, while I'm sitting there drinking beer, listening to music, sitting in the pool, I'm not going to be typing in every beer each time I drink one. Uh, yeah, th- you don't have to, though. That, that's about, like, at the end of the day, well, you, why wouldn't you just put your beers in? At the end of the day, after eight beers, I'm I'm not messing with apps. <laughs> you are right now? Yeah, I'm not, I didn't have eight beers just now. <laughs> yeah, this, I, I sometimes don't understand you, but that's okay. Listen. It's not my job to understand. Look. <laughs> this is me and this app have an understanding. Do you? Yeah. That okay. I'm going to put the food in and not the beers. I am not counting drinking. All right. And if we got a problem, if anything's, if that's not going to work, then I'm going to delete this damn app and I'll damn handle it myself. <laughs> wow. It is a, it is close to a personal relationship with this app you have. Well, I'm just saying, look, it is, look, I, me and you, this app, me and this app, man, we're going to do this together. Thank you. You're going to help me, but don't, mess with my beer we ain't t- we ain't talking about beer we ain't typing in beer you just don't want to know that number i don't i do know that number i drink so okay does this help you i drink bud 55s that's oh, the beer see, i drink that's perfect yep. i drink 55 calorie buds okay all right great thing about buds so this is a, a whole nother con- it's a whole other conversation man blew my mind and and i'm sure there's some incorrect information here that i'm about to say because I'm sure there's some big-time Bud, Bud Light fan, people that know the history better than I do, but talking to a friend or a few friends of mine. So I drink Bud 55. I've been drinking it for about five years. Mm-hmm. Half the calories of a Bud Light. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it doesn't taste the same. Shoot, man, now when I go drink a Bud Light, it's like drinking a Platinum. Oh, no. <laughs> Get yeah. Oh, yeah. You can taste the – you could just flavor, I mean. Like, it's, it's super – Rich, loaded, yeah. rich, so just very alcoholic. Yeah, but anyways, like a like a amber ale, yeah. or and I and and I don't have the stamina that I used to have. Ain't that the truth? But that's a, probably a good thing. I don't need that anymore in my life. But um, the Bud Fifty Fives have two point four roughly percent of alcohol in them. All right, mm-hmm. and so when I drink those, my beer drinking buddies give me a load of crap about it. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're drinking the water, the mm. sissy beer. There's and, always that one guy. Oh, yeah. Oh, it was, well, with, there's more than one, probably. But anyhow, they give me a hard time. But a friend of mine that I drink, I've, Sonny, one of my best friends, me and him have been beer buddies for a long time. He's like, hey, man, did you know that Bud Light used to have roughly around 2.5% alcohol in it back in the 90s, back in the early 90s? I was like, no, I didn't know that. It's, at four, it's up in the mid-four now percent hmm. right mm-hmm. and i was like no nah, i didn't know that he's like yeah they came out with like a five percent alcohol beer and it sold really well and so bud saw that marketing uh opportunity and started cranking up the beer the alcohol percentage in the bud light over time right oh bud light's now got x percentage now it's got this and just a way to sort of spike sales and it's cranked it all the way up to four now they've kind of reached the ceiling, to, they can't overtake this 5%. Yeah. I think it's a Bud Ice. Maybe. It's five. But anyhow. What do the Platinums have? Ooh, that's six something. I, it's good. That's a good question. Somebody should be digging that information up. <laughs> <laughs> um. Anyways, I don't know if that's true or not. It kind of made me feel better about drinking. Either way, I bought in. Yeah. I took that information as fact. Yeah. Because I'm drinking those 55s. 
And I'm like, yo, this is like an old school Bud Light. This is a throwback. I got you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Regular yeah. Budweiser is 5%. Regular Bud is 5 What's what, a Bud Ice? Select? Uh, Bud Select's 55 uh, Bud Select is 2.4-ish. What, no, I thought, th- oh, really? What is a Bud Light? Um, Five. 4.2. 4.2, that sounds about right. So the Bud Ice, I don't even know if they still make that, but that was they came out with this one. Everybody was buying it. Oh, it's got 5%. But but I says five point five. There you go. Oh, really? Right. And so, what's a platinum? Know if they still make. Stuff. I don't even know if they make that. Yeah, I think they it do. Is That's that cool six. blue bottle, right? Six. So there you go. That's good. So if if I if this information is correct, they've sort of cranked up that alcohol percent in the Bud Light over time. So I mean, uh, drinking that fifty five is not that not that big of a deal. No, okay, to good. Me. Picture this. It's blazing hot outside and you need to head to work. You get into your car and turn on the AC to get the cold air pumping as soon as possible, but it doesn't work. Instead, blowing hot air out of your vents and directly into your face. No, your car doesn't hate you. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the air conditioning system. And there's an easy all-in-one solution that will restore your cold air in no time. There's no need to go to the shop and pay lots of money when you can save time and money recharging yourself with AC Pro Recharge Kits. AC Pro Recharge Kits make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience. And the AC Pro app offers clear, vehicle-specific instructions to help you get the job done in less than 10 minutes. So pick up an AC Pro Recharge Kit at any store selling auto products and confidently restore your car's cold air yourself today. Be a pro with AC Pro. All right, y'all. Let's welcome Leonard Wood into the studio. NASCAR began in 1949, and the Wood Brothers were right there, always in a four. The Wood Brothers were right there, right there, right there, right there, right there. And you can bet that if he can just finish now, his pit crew will get a tremendous amount of credit for the job of engineering they did here today. The checkered flag is on. From Bowman Gray Stadium in the Appalachian foothills to the Indianapolis 500. Clark gets the fuel sign and pulls in on the 66th lap. To their best remembered days, breaking records on the NASCAR Super Speedway Trail with the Silver Fox, David Pearson. He's not making. He is less than 100 yards from it. Here comes Pearson. Pearson is going to try to make it across the finish line. Teddy has his car going. Pearson's going to win it. Oh, fast He wins. The Wood Brothers return to victory lane at Daytona with 20-year-old Trevor Bain. There he is. Whoa! Oh my God! Looking good. Looking good. Look at all the selection you got. Yeah, we got some stuff. You know, I, I just uh, kind of want to tell you that uh, you've come a long way <laughs> since uh, picking up lug nuts. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Is that right? I don't know, man. It just happens somehow. I don't even yeah, I don't even know how to describe it. You know, you have, too. Great experience. You have, you've come a long way yourself. Is that what you remember from him, uh, picking up lug nuts as a kid? I mean, like, what was your first memory? Well, I, di- I didn't know about it until the... Uh, 
Jimmy Means. Jimmy Means oh, episode. Oh, I got you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, he probably was taking some from you guys. No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you were wondering where they were. But, yeah, uh, yeah I, um, I never uh, got to see Dale uh, much, but y- you know we raced with your grandfather. That's uh, right. Ralph Earnhardt. And Ralph Earnhardt, I mean, he was one tough uh, race car driver. He took a sportsman car and beat a – Beat all the modified at the Charlotte Fairgrounds one time. Is that right? Yeah, we got great members of all of you, including (laughs) you. (laughs) Well, all right, Leonard. um, I've been trying to get you on this show for a long time, man. We got, you know, we got to talk to you, buddy. Oh, yeah. So where do we even start? Why? Uh, Why racing? Why was racing, how was racing, I guess, introduced to you and your brother? Well, you see... um, my brother Ray and uh, Glenn uh, was a big Curtis Turner fan, and they went to always went and watched him race, you know. So why were they race fans? What was they just? Well, we used to we kind of enjoyed running uh, the cars on the road a little bit okay. over the limit, you know. <laughs> 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 and uh, of course, to start with, you know, it was uh, like hauling lumber. Uh, out of a steep mountain, it was which which truck could pull the most lumber out of a steep mountain, Ford, Chevrolet, Dodge, and uh, that sort of thing. So when racing started, so you we, were running lumber, you weren't running any shine back then. No, but <laughs> it was it was a big rivalry, uh, which could pull the biggest load out of a mountain. Really? Yeah, that was big time. Just same as uh, who could outrun, uh, which is the fastest race car. And uh, so when racing started, we were ready to go. So, <laughs> so y'all just started going to the events. So uh, Glenn and it was about five more uh, was thinking about building a race car, and and one of them was going to drive it. And uh, Glenn wasn't really uh, the one who was supposed to drive the car. So all of them quit except two, and Chris Williams and Glenn. So Glenn had his personal car, and he. His friend was driving, already racing one of his friends, and uh, doing quite well. So he got his personal car on the track in a practice run and kept up with him. <laughs> so he figured if he had a good ra- a race car, he might do uh, do a little bit uh, uh, better. But uh, that's how it all started. Glenn ended up uh, uh, driving the race car. What are you doing throughout all that period of time? Well, see, I'm uh, still a young kid, and uh, what's the age difference between you and Glenn? Ten years. Okay. Mm. Uh, so uh, when he built a race car, you know, uh, uh, I was his chief mechanic, 15 years old, mm-hmm. and uh, so then uh, we go to the racetrack, and this guy, guy spins out in front of him. I had a big bumper sticking out. Well, it hooked Glenn's rear housing and bent it in a heat race. And uh, so because it bent to housing, when we was towing it home, the axle being attached to the, uh, to the wheel, when it broke the axle, the wheel runs off, pulls the gas spout out, mm. it, it hits the pavement, sparks flying, caught fire, <laughs> burn up right in the middle of the road. Wow. Going home. <laughs> So we bring it home, and I cleaned the thing all up, you know, and then uh, we went to the next race, and he finished third, first race he ever ever finished. And, okay. Uh, 
But anyway, they said, oh, Glenn, he'll quit after that. Uh, after <laughs> burned up. So then, you know, that kind of sparked him, you know, and he said, you know, he decided to prove he could do it. And so wasn't long. We was uh, winning races, sitting on pole, and that sort of thing. What kind of cars were y'all driving and building early? Uh, that was a 38 Ford, and then uh, 37 and 39 Fords become uh, real popular. Were you running modifieds? We were running sportsmen at the time. Okay. And so what was the transition from from that to, to the Cup Series? I mean, it's kind of hard to understand how all that happened because things were so fragmented back then, and the sport's really just kind of getting – created like it's not really uh you know it's not this thing that's been around for 50 years that's on national television it's just kind of thing and there's all kinds of sanctioning bodies firing off up every every state's got their own thing yeah um so how do you guys sort of how do y'all how do y'all how do y'all determine what you're going to run and where you're going to go and well see we uh we ended up and uh you know glenn uh won a lot of races at bowman gray and uh-huh. uh and then uh in 1956, uh, we built a 40 Ford, put a, a Mercury overhead motor in it, and went to the beach, you know, and uh, uh, set on pole, set a record, and then finished second overall, first in his class. So we got this overhead motor running, uh, began running real good, you know. In 1956, you know, we had it all worked out, already had the overhead motor running really good, and... Uh, so Curtis Turner and Joe Weatherly was running in the in for Ford Motor Company. They was a key key drivers for Ford Motor Company, and they went to Ford and says uh, you need to bring the Wood Brothers on on board. So that's when we started running for Ford in the convertibles in 1956. Mm. Because of those drivers, they saw y'all's talent and ability to understand how to make those motors run better. And then uh, the the camshafts and all that they started using in 1956 was the camshafts we was already running. Yeah. What y'all What were y'all doing? It was different. Uh, it was just like you, you know, you modify the inside of the engine, you know, and you, uh, uh, you know, look at ways of making it run, uh, perform better, the heads flow better, and all that sort of thing. So, uh, and you're doing all that in your shop, hours oh, and hours and hours and hours, right? Oh you're yeah, just pouring into it. Oh yeah. And y'all were able to figure all this out and do all this better than the guys that were already on the manufacturer deal. Well, I I remember I had modified a '56 Mercury for <laughs> uh, for uh, Glenn's partner and. Uh, and Glenn, uh, Glenn's uh, partner, Chris Williams, his brother, uh, run Oldsmobiles. And we didn't want his brother to know that, uh, that I'd modified Chris's <laughs> uh, Mercury. So Jim Pascal had a, a, a Mercury race car. And so at Daytona on the beach, you could go up and challenge anybody. You know, you'd line up and you'd just drag race down the beach. No matter who you were. When were you doing, when does this happen? In 1956. No, I know, but like, I, you just show up and say, and are, are are these, like, is this during the speed weeks? Yeah, during speed weeks. They had like a, a, a time trial? Before before the race, you could go out there and, uh, you know, run with anybody. You just go up there and wait, let somebody come up there and challenge you. 
<laughs> what well, was the point of that? Huh? What was the point of that other than just to race? Oh, just racing. Was there money on the line? No, no, nothing? no. Was there lumber involved? Y'all no. were just bored <laughs> and waiting on the waiting on the beach race to start. You're like, let's just have so, a couple drag hey, races. You so, want to go? You want to go? Let's do this right now. Right, let's go. I'm going <laughs> to roll up here and wait for somebody. So, oh, Jim anyway. Pascal, Are you ready to go, Jim? <laughs> so anyway, we line up. Chris lines up with Jim Pascal. And... <laughs> So we beat him. <laughs> and so he comes back and come up at him and says, What you got in that thing? And I says, And because Chris's brother was standing there, we didn't want him to know I'd done nothing. I said, Oh, nothing. So he got highly upset. Really? <laughs> yeah, that t- don't tell me that thing's stock, he said. <laughs> <laughs> this is the kind of stuff we love to hear. This is, is it. Now, you couldn't have been in 56 if you were 15 when you guys started racing. And yeah. you're the head mechanic here. You have to be, what, 20 like now at this point, 19 or 20, when uh, you guys are literally going to the well, beach and racing? I, I was born in 34, and that was 56. Okay, so now, yeah, so you're 22 years old. <laughs> uh, and and you're, you guys have already made a name for yourself, so much so that Curtis Turner is going and vouching for you guys. Is that? Yeah, well, Curtis used to drive a lot for us, too, you know. Uh, in the sportsman car? Yeah. Yeah, he, uh, <laughs> he took uh, – I went to the overhead valve engine, which was much better than the flathead, flathead Ford. Well, Glenn was driving the overhead uh, uh, car, both in a 37 coach. So the only one we had for Curtis to drive, and some the uh, Bowman Gray, uh, Alvin Hawkins, then wanted Curtis to drive. So we had this spare car, which wasn't as powerful as the overhead cars. So we give him that car. Well, during the race, somehow he got pinched into the corner and the thing went up on two wheels. It's going to turn over. I mean, it's definitely going to turn over. Well, he says, yeah, I just stirred it like a bicycle until I got to, <laughs> till I got to Bobby Myers and then I let it lean on him. <laughs> Bounce back on its wheels and goes on and wins the race on an underpowered car. Yeah. <laughs> Back then, um, you know, at those dirt tracks in the late 40s and early 50s, how much was the motor, how much was that extra power a big deal at a dirt track? Yeah, you always could use a good motor. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Your handling was good, you know. You had to to be able to handle, but... uh, What did you guys do? What was Ralph Earnhardt, Curtis Turner, the Wood Brothers, and those guys doing to handle at a local half-mile dirt track? You know, you wedged the car. Uh, How did you do it physically? Like, what? This, uh, you know, uh, Taylor Carter was a modified expert, and he built cars for, like, uh, Jimmy Lou Allen, and uh, and he loved kids. So I was just a young thing, you know, uh, running Bowman Gray, and uh, and he said, you come over to my shop, and I'll show you how to wedge a car. <laughs> So he takes me over there and shows me all about how to wedge a car, you know, uh, put wedges under the springs and all that sort of thing. And uh, so I kind of took it and run with it, you know, and uh, that was a key on a dirt track is getting your wedge and stagger properly. And you literally would take spacers, wedge shaped spacers and put them in different side you know put them on the left or the right side of the rear housing between the leaf springs and change the 
the wedge of the dynamic cross yeah, in the car. I, I, uh, I always... Uh, Were y'all cutting the front springs and things like that? Oh, yeah. You'd half leave on one side and the other, but you'd put a wedge in the right front and a wedge in the left rear. And I explain wedging is like if you set your car on uh, the right front on a cinder block and the left rear tire on a cinder block. Now, the car is sitting there rocking. Yeah. And the right rear's going down, right rear's going down, left front's coming up. You got a lot more pressure on your left rear tire and a lot more pressure on your right. So when it goes in the corner, when the power gets on it, it's still the left rear's on the ground. Now, if you had that backwards, put the center block on the left front and on the right rear, now it's going to go in the corner. Right front's going down, going to pick your left front off the ground. So to give you an illustration... Tim Flock was going to drive our car at, uh, at Bowman Gray when we first started. We didn't know nothing about wedging or nothing. It goes in the corner, and the left rear comes off the ground two feet. Mm. I mean, it's going to turn over. Mm-hmm. But that's because the right front was so weak, it let it yeah. fall. So, and when you stand on the gas, it was just spinning that left rear yeah, tire and, and not going and, nowhere. In today's world, I, I see this. You know, if the left rear is off the ground... <laughs> you can't You're going go, nowhere. Yeah, you can't go nowhere. And so what happens today, a lot of them, to me, when they get to pushing, they take weight out. Well, if you got wedge in the car, you put pressure on that left rear tire, and if you got the tire pressure down, it's a small turning radius, you get in the throttle, it'll pull the front end around. But if you take weight off of it, it's the same as got no stagger. So, yeah. You got to believe in stagger how it works, you know, to make it really work. Well, um, you guys, you talked about building that car and going to Daytona to the beach. Um, when did y'all, when did y'all run the first Cup race? When did y'all enter the first Cup race? Oh, we run that back in 1953 at Martinsville in a Lincoln. <laughs> in a Lincoln, is it a big deal? I mean, in 1953, when you're going up there to run Martinsville, are y'all, is it a big deal? Is it sounds like in my head that you're going to, man, I'm going to go run my first cup race. Like I'm trying, I remember trying to get the cup and I remember running my first cup race and I'm like, oh my God, this is insane. Was it that big of a deal back then? Because the sport was so, so new. The 53 Lincoln, that was this, this kind of racing, but, uh, uh, when it become a big deal was when we started running new new convertibles for Ford Motor Company. Uh-huh. That's when it become a big deal. Why? Why so, was that? Well, I mean, you know, to, to have a car to run the, uh, run for Ford Motor Company was uh, that was big. So, what is the difference of running for Ford Motor Company being a manufacturer team then versus now? I mean, I know you guys still have manufacturer support. But Ford doesn't Ford or Chevy Toyota they don't put the teams out there. This is you know what I mean. This ain't Team Toyota. This is Joe Gibbs Racing. They are they race Toyotas, and they have an affiliation with Toyota. But back in you know back in the fifties when you guys started, it was there was that was a Ford team. Ford put that team on the track, right? The, is that the best way to look? No, uh, uh, Ford just uh, furnished you uh, parts. Yeah, uh, back in fifty six. Uh, you know, engine parts and all that sort of thing. We went up to uh, the Northern Tour uh, at uh, in New York, and uh, we needed an engine. 
and they says, well, just go off the Oakville plant in Canada and take one off assembly line. <laughs> just like that. So we go over to Ford assembly plant in, uh, in Canada, take the engine off the assembly line, bring it back to a Ford dealership in Buffalo, New York, and take a motor apart, hone it out to give it clearance so it don't heat. And, of course, the, the hone we was using, I think it was uh, uh, rough as the pavement outside. <laughs> mm. But anyway, we put it back together, finished te- uh, second to our teammate, Curtis Turner, at Buffalo Stadium. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all this talk about motors has got me asking. I, you know, we just did a second season of Lost Speedways, and one of our episodes was Columbia Speedway. And in that story, in that episode, we talked about the engine wars between Chrysler's Hemi and Ford's 427 single overhead cam. And I know that we're now advancing a decade here, but we're going to jump around all over the place anyway. So this is now like in 1965, Ford goes in a boycott. What do you recall of that? And Because we talked to Bobby Allison, and we were trying to understand, I think a lot of the question Dale was asking, we're trying to really understand how the the manufacturers were really affecting the team's decisions. And I remember seeing driver quotes saying, hey, they said we're not racing, we're not racing. And they sat out. All summer, if, if I recall. Uh, and so, like, when Ford, the, the whole engine wars between Hemi, what, what do you recall from that time, and how were you guys affected? Well, we, uh, Glenn went to uh, Lamar uh, when they run the uh, Lamar cars over there yeah. in 19, 1966, was it? Six, 65. Anyway, I stayed home and uh, got me a 65 Ford galaxy frame laid it in the floor narrowed it shortened it to where a 37 ford coupe body would sit on it <laughs> so i built a uh that's a little uh 37 uh red uh, number 21 ford modified coupe that ray everham bought yeah. you know anyway put coil springs on all four wheels well, I take it to Martinsville, and the thing uh, looked like it's just carrying a dead horse through the turn <laughs> because the geometry wasn't right. So I took it out, put a straight axle on it, and it looked like he picked up 10 miles an hour through the corner. But <laughs> anyway, Glenn uh, went to Lamar and stayed over there, and uh, kind of that's what we did while Ford was out of racing. So y'all were out, yeah, I mean, we was that. That's what we were doing. So why didn't you just get another car, get another manufacturer? Why didn't you just keep racing? I was just so loyal to Ford. Really, <laughs> I've always been loyal to Ford. I mean, uh, we've been, uh, you know, uh, such f- good friends for so long a time. And uh, so that's what I was trying to get at is like the manufacturer support back then was different. Like when, like when y'all did a deal with Ford or Ford supplied you with parts that that um committed you you know to them so when they did pull out you you do something different right whereas today you know if toyota left or chevy left you somebody just somebody just get another car another manufacturer you know yeah well we was uh confronted uh several times uh while ford was out uh to do oh with other manufacturers to, to give to give us more more help you know but i I still want to stick with Ford, so. Uh, and why is that? What? Why did you already feel such a sense of loyalty? Well, I just—that's just the way I am. Mm-hmm. I just—if uh, somebody does me a favor, I, I don't forget it. And, yeah. 
and uh, so we just stayed together all that time. You built your uh, you built the go kart when you were thirteen. Yeah, you used a washing machine motor. Yeah, it was a, a Johnson, which is four cycle. Okay. Yeah, it, it's not a Maytag two cycle. It was, <laughs> <laughs> it's a four cycle. And uh, Johnsonville's a good go kart motor. So actually, you would not believe how smooth this thing runs. <laughs> well, I imagine. Yeah, the thing was designed more than a hundred years ago. Uh, so the, the little carburetor, you know how a throttle shaft has got a. Uh, nowadays, they got uh, a flat and two screws that holds the throttle plate on yeah. the throttle shaft. <laughs> this thing had a a slot. Cut in the middle of the shaft, a hole drilled in the end of the shaft, tapped, set screw goes up, if your blade goes in that slot, that set screw goes up and, and touches that uh, blade and pushes it to tighten it. Now it don't have no screws showing, you know, on, this, yeah. on the throttle shaft. hundred years ago. <laughs> or more, I don't Better know. Better airflow? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. But I, w- I would like to crank the thing up and let you hear it run sometime. It's still going? It runs like uh, 25 miles an you hour. You still have it? Oh, yeah. It's in the museum. Good. Oh, <laughs> gosh. Gosh. <laughs> I went to the junkyard and, uh, you know, I got parts. I didn't have no money. And so uh, I go to the junkyard uh, and my... Uh, it was uh, the guy, my uh, brother-in-law's brother, is a wood also. Uh, uh, used to buy uh, army trucks, so the army trucks had the same motor as a amphibious army duck. So then he'd buy army ducks, uh, military to get all the parts because they had the same running gear. <laughs> and then they had, like, sprockets and all this sort of thing. So it had a double double uh, row sprocket, uh, small and large. That, that's what I, I used to run, uh, put on the axle and the, and the drive gear. Uh, <laughs> and you're ready to go to war. <laughs> and then the... Uh, press pulley was made out of a bearing out of a uh, Ford water pump, and the bearings was out of a transmission of a 44 transmission, and then uh, uh, the front end was designed just like the uh, go-karts today, which was, this was 10 years before go-kart was ever uh, introduced. So it wasn't a copy of a go-kart, but the, cop- the go-karts was built, got the same steering that this had. So huh. anyway... Had a lot of fun with it. Was your dad this clever with, uh, with, with you know, mechanical things? I mean, you're figuring things out at an early age that I, I don't know that anybody could just look at and just go, yeah, this is this is some creativity I can apply to this. Where did you get that? Well, uh, my dad was an extremely uh, intelligent mechanic, you know, a great mechanic. But I didn't ask him how to do stuff. I wanted to do it on my own. Mm. Uh, he would have helped me whatever I asked, you know, but. I just wanted to make stuff on my own. I didn't. Uh, I didn't want any help. Uh, this, this little. Old, uh, it was a motor kit that you could buy for a bicycle, uh, that you could put on a bicycle. Uh, Where's a motor? And I just envied him so much because I I wanted one so bad. So my brother-in-law gave me that uh, motor, and I made the go kart. So um, 
you guys are uh, really well known for your number, 21. You always had, you, for the most part, you've always had the number 21. And I was wondering, I was looking, you know, at the notes, uh, your first number was number 50. Yep. Why 50? Because he paid $50 for the car when he bought it. That was it. Yeah, now we put a lot <laughs> more money in it. But <laughs> that's what it, and so when it got burned up, this uh, Curtis Turner had this number 16, Bill Snowden was uh, building this car. It was really fast. So we'll put 16 on it after we repaint it. Yep. And uh, we run that for a while. And then come out with a stroker kit, built a new motor with a stroke, big more stroke. And uh, this guy had a hot modified down uh, South Carolina, just flying, number 22. So we're going to put 22 on this one. <laughs> so we run that, and then as we started running, uh, uh, building more cars, we'd have one with number 21 on it. And uh, so we run that uh, during all the sportsmen. So when we went to the convertibles, uh, we had number 22 on our convertible. Mm -hmm. Well, Fireball Roberts had 22 on the hardtop division. But when you run them both together, which they did, the convertible had to change their number. Yeah, you did. So we put number 21 on it. And it stayed. And it stayed. <laughs> right around uh, the, the mid-'80s, y'all had uh, Kyle get in the car there for a little while, and y'all ran the 7, didn't you? Yeah. What was that like? Did you have any belly aching over that? Oh, yeah. I, I hated that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but. It's still 21. Yeah. Mm. Seven on each door, one on the roof. I, uh, <laughs> yeah. I see what you're saying. I see what you're Hello. saying. Hello. Is that how they got you to go along with it? I mean, it looks like you weren't happy. <laughs> they, they, they said, well, no, look. I, I'll tell you what. I mean, back along about that time, you know, you'd paint it pink if it needed. <laughs> right. <laughs> they furnished the money. Whatever it took. Yeah. You yeah. had 11 Hall of Fame drivers, uh. 99 wins, looking for 100. Uh, this weekend at New Hampshire. David Pearson, Kel Yarbrough, Neil Bonnet, Marvin Panch, A.J. Foyt, mm. Glenn Wood, Dan Gurney, Speedy mm. Thompson, Kyle Petty, Tiny Lund, Curtis Turner, Donnie Allison, Buddy Baker, Dale Jarrett, Morgan Shepard, Elliot Sadler, Trevor Bain, and Ryan Blaney. So um, I've always been a really, really big Kel Yarbrough fan. <laughs> but you guys, I think a lot of people, you know, really – uh, remember the years y'all had David Pearson. What is the difference uh, between those two drivers, between David Pearson and Kelly Yarbrough? Uh, both of them are great drivers. Uh, David Pearson was a guy, he, he drawed brakes with his right foot, and he'd go down and back off the throttle and then pick your throttle up at the right place. He'd take your right line. He just knew so much the line he needed to take. Uh, and then Kale, he would run, like, circle the track. Like, like especially at Atlanta, he'd just rim ride it all the way around. David would uh, go in high, dive low, blend out, you know. But in all fairness, David Pearson was the easiest person to, to get around the racetrack fast because uh, – he broke uh, braked with his right foot, so he was never on his left foot on the brakes or nothing. So uh, 
you just get it to rolling free through the corner, and he wouldn't be loose. Neil would be loose with David's setup. So if you've got your car tight, it's not rolling through the corner as fast. Yeah. As free as you David was so free through the corner, it made you able to turn or run a taller gear. And uh, he just uh, unbelievable uh, how he'd run Darlington, you know, he'd back off. And I remember one time he says uh, he got, he, he, he was smoking at the time, smoked cigarettes. And so what he did, he got all set to go in high and he'd go and make a run at Buddy Baker and just lit his cigarette as he as he passed him, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow. Yeah, just as he passed me, he lit that cigarette. <laughs> and, and of course that kind of upset Buddy. Got in know, his head. But, <laughs> but uh Kale, he just uh he gave it a hundred and ten percent the whole time. I mean <laughs> He seemed like he was the kind of guy that would, you know, wring a car's neck all you know, just oh, run it as hard it, as it Oh, yeah. Harder than it had to be run. And then his little old neck was short, you know, whenever he'd run Bristol. They they thought he had an advantage on everybody. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So y'all team up with David Pearson and y'all, you know, you know, win about every race you show up to. You don't run the full season. How come the Wood Brothers decide, you know, to run a part-time season, you know, through the majority of the 70s? Well, we just didn't have any, that many people in the shop, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so we just kind of enjoyed doing what we were doing, you know. And uh, Today, if you don't run all the races, you can't keep up. You right? have to lunch. How <laughs> do you do it back then? Well, I mean, then it was, uh, it was different. Uh, you know, nowadays cars, I mean, they just inch by a guy down the straightaway or whatever. Back then, you know, you uh, you'd come up with something, you know, that it would just blow by a car. I mean, and uh, it was just a lot different racing back then. Yeah, and when y'all, you know, during your off time or you know between races, you guys are trying to find the next trick, the next advantage, the next you know the next thing that's going to help you blow by the competition when you do show up at the racetrack again. I, uh, you know, of course. Uh, uh, my late wife Betty used to love to shop, and uh, so I just go to the waiting area, and uh, and then what I would do is I just concentrate all that time on how I was gonna build something or make something better or whatever, and then once you do get the edge on somebody, you still keep getting it because if you if you slow down somebody's gonna catch up with you so you still work all the time trying to get an advantage on somebody is there anything that stands out in your mind of a discovery or any kind of uh you know a way you might have you know set the geometry up on a car that was just like a light bulb went off or it just set the car on you know set the car on fire and made it so much more competitive well 1962 i just got out of the army and uh Back then, cars pushed the front end. Well, of course, they still do. But they seemed to roll over, you know, and they'd wear the tire out on the right, uh, out of edge. So I come up with a spindle that uh, would gain negative camber or positive camber, you know, in at the top. You know, when the car go down, it'd lay in at the top. Yeah. 
Well, when the body rolled, the footprint would stay exactly flat on the pavement. You know, as the body rolled, it pulled the tire in, but when the body rolled, it pushed it back to where it was still straight. And so at Daytona in 1963, I had that spindle on there, and and the tire wire was perfectly even across the bottom, you know, just flat across the bottom. Yeah. So... We end up running the whole race on one set of tires. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and that was a big deal because you changed the tires with a four-way back then, probably. No, we changed it with uh, – we, we had the pit stop worked out starting in 61. Uh, but we didn't want to change tires because we might cross-thread something, uh, and we wanted to keep him in the draft. This was because Tiny Lund had, uh, uh, you know uh, – filled in for Do- Marvin because Marvin was in the crash got uh, in that sports car. Yeah. Uh, and we wanted to keep him in the draft all day because they had a caution flag at 34 laps. So we run 42 laps. 42 laps. 42 laps. The last one only had to run 40. So we made up all that time. Fred Lorenzen and Ned Jarrett has not made their laps up. So we knew at the last hundred miles, nothing happened. We was going to win the race if it didn't something happen. Really? Because they was going to have to stop. How come the Wood Brothers, like, why didn't everybody else figure the pit stop out? Why was uh, well, they they come on to it <laughs> in 1960. Uh, Fireball Roberts and uh, Smokey Eunuch took them 45 seconds to change two tires and fill it up with fuel. Yeah. So this uh, Ford engineer, John Cowley, says, I think it's a lot to be gained in the pits. Hmm. So naturally, you know, you want to press Ford Motor Company. Yeah. So we just started working on it. So right away, we was 25 seconds with two tires and gas. And so then we'd uh, make pit stops and, it looked like we was a half a lap back. <laughs> we was a half a lap ahead. Yeah. But it didn't take them long, you know. They Everyone else. They, they figured it out. Yeah. But y'all, so you kind of, you know, the Wood Brothers get credited, though, with being the team that sort of revolutionized the pit stop. And uh, the story is that you guys ended up going to Indy uh, and to to run, to manage and, and crew a car and pit a car. And the pit stops and the, the efficiency is what helped y'all win that race. Yeah, we, uh, the same guy, John Cowley, Ford Motor Company, said that Henry Ford wanted us to come up and pit the car because they'd have some problems the year before. So we go up a week ahead, and we don't know if these guys going to accept us or not. Exactly. I mean, they English guys. <laughs> And we walk in. And it's open wheel. And uh, immediately they just rolled out the red carpet, let us take the car and prepare it for a pit stop or however we wanted to do it. So we out there working on it. And <laughs> the the fuel tank <laughs> had a big uh, a plate on the bottom where you unbolt it and you could crawl up in the tank. And uh, we had a big old giant Venture. In, in the inside of the tank to where they, they sucked the fuel out. And uh, so I'm up in the tank. My brother Ray is looking for me. And 
He don't know where I'm at. Well, I'm up in this tank <laughs> polishing this Ventura. But anyway, the inspector come by, and uh, he's inspecting everything. He's, he says, uh, how, how come you got that outlet so far up on the tank? See, if you got a big Ventura, the outlet center's going to be off the bottom. All the rest of them was on the bottom. Okay. Y'all changed this? Uh, now, the, uh, the uh, Chapman's people built this tank for us. Okay. Uh, but uh, anyway, I said, well, it's just up there. <laughs> I could have cared less, you know, uh, what he thought. He <laughs> said, I'll bet you $1,000 you can't pour 20 gallons a minute out of that tank. <laughs> no. uh, I'm thinking, well, we didn't bet with him. We just wanted to get through inspection. <laughs> so we made a dry run after we got it all through inspection and everything. We put 58 gallons in in 15 seconds. Mm. Dang. <laughs> was that the big holdup? Was the fuel of the cars back then? Well, see, they was doing it under pressure the year before, up till the year before. So now they're going to gravity flow. They figure we're going to be in there about a minute. And... uh so we knew it was going to do uh, about a, under 20 seconds. So I think the first one was about 17, 18 seconds. What everybody say, uh, what everybody up down pit road think when that happened? Well, the, the commentator, uh, Sam Hanks, he says, uh, well, says, you can bet they didn't get it full, says, you know, <laughs> a green, green crew and all that. He'll be back in. <laughs> <laughs> So he kept running, kept running. And the, and the guy says, uh, you said he's going to be back in. He said, well, I don't understand it. So the runner had a runner to come down to see if we was mixing half gasoline, half alcohol, where he didn't have to put in as much. Oh, wow. And Chapman says, pure alcohol. So anyway, got the most published in the least amount of time I ever got. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. So listen, okay, so you got the spindle that you're talking about. You've got this uh, genius way to uh, apply fuel. Where, where where do you draw your – what inspires you to come up with this creativity? Where does that happen? You, you, you did mention that you would utilize time when uh, Miss Betty was shopping. But literally, is it conversation you're having inside your shop? Where do you come up with this idea? They're so far-fetched that I can't imagine how that it would have been easy just to dream these things. Well, I, I don't want this to come across uh, wrong, but uh, whenever I see a problem, somehow thought just rings a bell is how to fix it. You know, like somebody comes up and presents me with a problem, immediately a thought comes to my head <clears throat> what to do to fix it. Yeah. It, uh, you know, it's, just, it's a good Lord's blessing. <laughs> it's an amazing thing to have. What do you think? Uh, how did your How did your uh, time in the military have an impact on you? Well, I didn't like it. <laughs> you didn't. What made you want to join the military? Oh, I, I got called in. Did you? <laughs> oh, yeah. Really? <laughs> I didn't volunteer. I couldn't wait to get out. How long were you in there? Two year. <clears throat> two years. Okay. And then I got called back in 1961. Really? How, yeah. So wait, how 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 many years between that? Well, First, I was out two and a half years and got called back in for nine and a half months. What was going on? Uh, they called it was you a in? Berlin crisis. Okay. Yeah. Really? 
What did you end up having to do while you were in the military? Well, I was replacing engines, major assemblies, and all that. Working on cars, trucks. Oh, yeah. Really? Where Working were you on at? Jeeps. Where were you at? Uh, uh, Straubing, Germany. Whoa, you went overseas? Oh, yeah. Hello. Really? Stayed over 19 and a half months. Well, that might have been all right. <laughs> no, no? no, not really. I went to uh, Monza, Italy, and watched the cars run over there. Well, then you got to do that. Yeah, yeah. How was that? That was fun. Yeah, <laughs> took eight millimeter uh, film of the race, and uh, it didn't have no sound. Yeah, but uh, you know, John Zink uh, was a big time front row starter at Indy, uh, his cars and. Uh, Jim Rathman was driving uh, John Zink car, and uh, uh, I filmed it and showed him winning the race, how far he was ahead and all, and in the garage area. So uh, AJ Fort was over there in the pits, and uh, but so I to get back home or go to Indy. Uh, when was it? Uh, first race at Indy. These these race fans come up and was talking to me. They was from the same town, uh, next next door neighbor to, to John Zink, uh-huh. and uh, I was telling them about the video, and they says uh, wrote me a letter and wanted to know if they could borrow that uh, tape to make a copy, and you'd have thought you'd have given him a million dollars because John Zink didn't have no recording of him winning that race. Mm. So, oh, and then he got inducted in the Hall of Fame up there a little later, but. Uh, yeah, it's a, a, a great experience uh, to be in the Army. I mean, it teaches you a lot uh, how, to, how, to not, uh, how to take care of yourself and all that. That's pretty interesting. So um, y'all win uh, a lot of races with David Pearson in the 70s, and then the wheels come off at Darlington. Yeah. Um, <laughs> glad, glad you brought that up. Yeah. <laughs> well, I got to ask you. Um, yeah. We, you know, I didn't live, you know, that experience, but I've, you know, I've done my homework and I love watching all those races from the 70s. And I know every, you know, I know what I think I need to know about David Pearson and I know how much you guys thought of him uh, as a driver. Um, but what is happening? You know, between y'all, that at that moment, I mean, it looks to me like a a simple mistake, miscommunication. What 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 allowed what happened that allowed that to boil over to a departure? uh, You know, and y'all split up. Well, uh, we kind of thought he was wanting to quit racing, and uh, we was going to change four tires. We said we'd change four. Was he saying that? Huh? Was he talking about that? What was giving you that impression? Uh, I forget how it come up, but we could just kind of tell that it looked like he it was ready. Anyway, we were going to change four tires. We said four tires. Well, he took off with two before we got the other yeah. two on, uh, which ended up kind of we got upset, you know. And so right afterwards, we said, well, let's forget about it. And uh, I was already talking to him about what was going to run Martinsville and, you know, just sure. let it blow over. And our sponsor said, no, you're going too far. 
and made us go ahead and go through with it. Really? Yep. Um, Otherwise, we wouldn't have split up. Biggest mistake we ever made. You think? Yeah. He had what? how many more years left, you think? I don't know, but he goes on and wins the, day, uh, the uh, Yeah, he had a couple more Southern wins. 500. Yeah. We go down there, and uh, David wasn't there. Well, they wanted Neil to shake David's car down. Neil was driving our car. And so Neil said, well, you won't have to worry about David tomorrow. Says, that thing's so loose, you can't drive it. He wins the race, don't even turn a jack screw. Mm. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that, that's what I'm telling you, that the way he drove, he could get away with your car rolling free through the car. Sure. He drove him loose. Yeah. It, it wasn't loose for David. No. Yeah. Yeah. It's, when you say it was the biggest mistake, is that was that your words that you guys made? Yeah. Was it was it a mistake letting him loose? Was it a mistake listening to the sponsor and let them dictate your your next move? A mistake letting the best driver get away from you. Yeah. <laughs> I was just uh, one of those things. You know, I, I, you've been together so long. You know, I made I made a very similar mistake. Yeah. Uh, well. You know, part you know splitting with Tony Senior when things had went so well for us in two thousand four. You know, I can understand how you, you know, in those moments you can you can make those decisions. But um, I'd always wondered, you know, how that happened because y'all were so good together, and that that is that thing at Daytona. I mean, uh, Darlington on pit road doesn't seem like a deal breaker, right? That's yeah. just a that's just a miscommunication. Well, it got to where we wasn't winning as much as we were, and. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I don't care who you are or what you are. Uh, uh, sometimes you get the edge on 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 the other other team on your competition, and then that may last for a year or two, and then somebody else gets the edge on you. So that's kind of what happened. We was in a in a down slump uh, uh, from from the way we were. Yeah, uh, sure. a little bit. But S- since you mentioned that. Uh, you and Tony Jr., I was at your wedding. Yeah. And you and Tony Jr. got to talking about, it was when you started out, and I believe you was at Darlington, and you said, something's wrong with this car. Yes. And they, trying, they didn't think you knew what you were talking <laughs> That's about. That's right. <laughs> and I believe they said, well, you just go ahead and drive it. And, and you, you said it um, – you was going to quit. You wasn't going to drive no more and all that. And they end up, what, with the axle was broke finally? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, something was wrong. You so, did, went back at the shop. Yeah. Yep. We were running seventh, qualified top ten, running seventh, and then the thing got super loose and I don't know, uh, really bad. And I spun off of two, hit the inside wall, and Darlington's two-lane racetrack. They fixed the car, and they sent me back out there. And I said, well, not only now am I driving – a car with no front end on it and it's bent but i got that that axle still in the car broke and uh, i said i don't know i can't even get out of the way y'all this is terrible and i came in and parked it and t- and got out and walk- and i i walked away and tony senior and tony junior were right very furious with me very very furious and i um so dad so dad Finishes the race, and I meet him to go home with him. I'm flying with the he- in the helicopter with him, and I we're walking to the helicopter. And I said, Dad, I ain't racing no more. 
I said, give me a desk job. I don't give a damn what job it is. I ain't driving. If this is how it's got to go. Because I got told I was a quitter. I got told all these things that just, I was like, I ain't into living like this. And uh, he uh, just let it go in one ear and out the other. Right? He's like, <laughs> well, he's like, You'll, we'll see. We get back to the shop and Tony's Jr., I mean, I walk in the door on Monday, and Tony Jr. hands me that axle, and all the teeth is missing off the splines. And uh, he goes, I mean, I thought it was interesting he gave that to me because the way I got the way they was talking to me the day before, I thought I'd never seen that. I'd never see that axle, even if it was even if you up. were right, right, right. right. They're not going to. Tony Jr. met me at the door, and he's like, "Hey, found your problem," and I was like. Give me that damn thing. I'm walking that sun around this whole shop for a week. <laughs> on everybody. Like, hey, man, it wasn't me. <laughs> Dad, I'm back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm back. Oh, I don't man. want that desk job anymore. <laughs> yeah. Hey, the list of drivers, since we're on this topic, the list of drivers that have run for Wood Brothers is some headstrong individuals. I mean, I'm hearing some names. So when it comes to telling people to shut up and drive, how do you do that with some of the characters? Like how the, the, the dynamics between, uh, you know, you guys as the ownership and the mechanics and the crew, and then these headstrong drivers, and they can all be in their own ways, you know, head cases. And I mean that in a good way, but, uh, how, how, you got such a diverse lineup of personalities that you guys have worked with. How, what's the secret of working with all them? Well, um, number one, like you don't tell AJ Ford that, <laughs> that like, you know, criticize him or nothing like that. I mean, uh, or tell him, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. You explain why you're going to do it. Uh, we go, we're going to do it this way or, or whatever. And explain what you're going to feel or, or, or what. Uh, we was at, at uh, California, and uh, we was running okay. And he says, uh, I think we need to have a, a different spring in the right front. And uh, I said, okay. So I put it, he says, now that really feels good. And I says, uh, yeah, but you run a half a second slower. He said, bull-ass. <laughs> put it back like you had it. <laughs> and then he goes on and wins the race. He also, he was out there one time, the first race out there at the uh, California, Ontario. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh he was leading the race, and uh, he said, I, I got a tire shaking. I got to come in. And uh, so I had a caution flag, and he didn't come in. And uh, they was play, paying $150 a lap back then, that first race. And uh, he said, it just got to thinking it didn't feel too bad picking up $150 <laughs> a lap. <laughs> and uh, went on wins the race. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. But uh, we had some great times together. We. We've uh, Wood Brothers has had the uh, best drivers in the world. And yeah. uh, was there ever a driver that y'all had a hard time to getting along with? That might have been it's kind of a little difficult. <laughs> we had a a little bit of problem with uh, Earl Balmer. Yeah, uh, he, Kale was running uh, California in a speedway car, maybe or something other. Anyway, uh, Earl Balmer had to fill in, and so we got a it's a. A Galaxy with two four-barrel carburetors on it, 427. And last race at Fred Lorenzen run Darlington was a 396 with one carburetor. 
And so uh, uh, Fred told him that he should be able to get back wide open on it <laughs> in the corner, in the middle of the corner, and, and come through wide open. Well, he might have done it with a uh, 396, but he wasn't going to do it with a 427 2 four barrel. So he took his word for it. So he, bam, right into the wall he went with it. But uh, yeah, we didn't uh, we didn't get him going as good as we have some of them. Mm. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> See, I mean, it didn't sound like y'all had you know. I guess when you're working, you know, when you're driving for the Wood Brothers, you probably don't make things difficult. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. I think there's a there's always that one driver that tries. I know you would think there'd be yeah. one guy that didn't get it, didn't have any self awareness. Yeah, I always. Uh, <laughs> I always believed in when I set the car up for the guy, uh, I always uh, explained what I did and what he might feel. Uh, I've had crew chiefs tell me that, uh, you know, I changed so-and-so, and he didn't even, couldn't even tell the difference. Mm. Well, all these changes to make, how many changes you ever made, it just made that much difference. Right. And if you tell a guy what he's looking for, he'll say, it might have been a little bit better. Yeah. And uh, uh, if you, I mean, there's so many things you absolutely can't tell the difference, even though if it is a, a tenth difference, you know. Yeah. But uh, we had uh, uh, doing a test session at, uh, at at Talladega, and I had him to go out and read the tachometer. And he'd say, well, this might be uh, 2,500 uh, 2, quicker. And I changed six things, mm. and every one of them was about that much difference, you know. And Donnie Allison had set the uh, car on pole, and he went to California at 186. He went to California to run a car for A.J. Ford in the Indy cars. And so uh, after I got through, I turned him loose, and he ran 188 miles an hour, two miles an hour quicker, just for that little change. And uh, shoot, I'll think of him. Well, you'll think of it. Give me one more name. I want to hear about Curtis Turner. Well, we don't talk about Curtis Turner on the show enough, and and everything I know about him would have been just from stuff I've read and legend. What's something about that man that we should all know about? He had more control of a car of anybody I've ever seen. He just, whether it's sideways, up on the bank, or whatever, uh, he just had so much feel of a, of a car. Uh, I think he would, nowadays, he would go run the turns too hard. I mean, you know, at, at a track where you could overdrive one, he had a, he wanted to go in there wide open, you know. Mm. It, uh, <laughs> on dirt, you know, he was just such a show to watch him run, you know. It uh, was up at uh, Ileana outside of Chicago in a USAC race after NASCAR season was over. We went up there, got invited to go up there. So he's set in third place. Uh, uh, Paul Goldsmith's on the outside and another guy on, uh, on the inside and another guy on the outside. Well, he just dives down the inside over the rumple strips and everything and comes out on the backside ahead. <laughs> wow. Oh, he just, uh, he just, uh, so much control of a driver. It's amazing. Yeah. I was wondering about, you know, looking at that list of names and, uh, what driver in the, you know, what driver that worked for y'all 
that you only had a very short time with that you, you know, you had David Pearson for a long time. You had a lot of races with him, but what driver did you work with that you wish you'd have been able to have more time with? Well, I guess David. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we, we'd have worked it out. Yeah. Oh, he, he was so funny. I mean, uh, you know, when it had that wreck done in, uh, 1976, uh, him and Pierce, him and uh, Petty. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, wow, yeah. This guy asked him, was he mad? He said, no, but I was getting ready to be if I hadn't won that race. <laughs> yeah. How bad was that car tore up? Uh, not all that bad. His sheet metal was all yeah. ripped up. It he, looked like just sheet metal. But I know if he it still made the, another lap, you clip. know. Uh, this, uh, I know you heard the story. You know, he's spinning around in the grass and uh, – I had Eddie, uh, Eddie always uh, used the radio, you know, because I couldn't understand on the radio, couldn't understand what he's saying. And so uh, he keyed the radio and told Eddie, says, the blank hit me. <laughs> and, uh, so while he's spinning around, and so somebody confronted Dale Inman about it, <laughs> you know, about him hitting him. Dale said he didn't hit him hard enough. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's good. And Dale Inman, you know, we was, uh, I guess you'd say, big rivals back then, yes. you know, extreme competitive against each other. But uh, bottom line is uh, 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 Dale and Richard both as good of friends as we got right now. And uh, at just, uh, I think when you're so strong, competitive with, uh, another team, uh, uh, a team that is exceptionally good, it it makes you uh, uh, friendship stronger. Yeah. Uh, after it's all over, you know, you look back and uh, uh, you both make each other better. That's for sure. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, yeah, the the twenty one and the forty three run first and second to each other so many times through that period of time in the seventies with uh, Richard and David. And uh, by the way. I would have loved back in the day to have you you driving for us. Really? Yeah. Why you say that? Well, I just uh, you know I told you many times when you wasn't running as good as you'd like that it wasn't you. Yeah. I mean, you can't carry it on your back. I mean, uh, it uh, car's got to be right for any driver to do good. You got to have it right for him. Yeah. So. I think we could have just made a good team. I we'd had a lot of fun. We'd had a lot of fun. I think we would have. Um, you know, I think. Uh, what's the future for Wood Brothers? What is well? <clears throat> that you probably need to talk to my mm-hmm. nephews Ed and Lynn. Uh, yeah, I let them do that. You know, I just sat back and do some things, that special projects that they got me doing. You know, and I really enjoy doing and. Uh, uh, I let them handle that. I just, I just kind of uh, sat back, not hurting myself working. So you're at the shop every every day, every day. Yeah, piddling on something. Yeah. What do you spend <laughs> most of your time with? Well, I, I know you heard about the little engine we just finished. Uh, Nobody else has heard about it. Nobody listening to this podcast knows about it. Huh? Tell well, us they about might. It. I don't know. Not about everybody it. knows about it. Well, see, Ed and Lynn is always looking for me something to do, you know. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> and uh, so they were looking around, and they decided they wanted me to make a 427 tunnel port like we won 1968 at Daytona, uh, half size, half as big. 
How do you do that? And so uh, uh, they come back. Uh, I'd had uh, back surgery where I fell, tripped over a cord. And when I got back to the shop, the machinist says, Ed and Lynn got something they want you to do. And he told me what they wanted me to do, is build that half-size engine. So Eddie got to talking to Edsel Ford, and Edsel Ford says, well, it'd be nice to make it like the uh, 67 Lamar car winner, which had a 427, two four barrels. And uh, so then that's what he ended up making. Uh, and with all the headers, you know, that was on the, the like... Uh, 180-degree mm-hmm. scrambled egg headers, uh, <laughs> spaghetti headers, yeah. uh, which I had to make them by just looking at pictures. I didn't have the car. And I, if I'd had the engine sitting there, it'd been, I, I used to make headers. So anyway, uh, it was a big challenge. And, uh, uh, yeah, Edsel Ford said it'd be nice to make it and then put it in the Henry Ford Museum. So... Oh, hence why you would have made it half the size, right? Like they told you to make it half the size, right? No, Ed and Lynn just wanted me to make it half size. Oh, okay. And then they (laughs) they told Edsel what they was going to do, and then Edsel wanted wanted us to make it half, wanted to make it and put it in the Henry Ford Museum. How accurate were you? So the little carburetors, you know, is, is made identical to the big ones. Right. And then now, you know, I've had I've got a, got one of those carburetors made that runs a 390 motor and will rev it half throttle, will rev it to where it floats the hydraulic valves. <laughs> and it and it runs just like a big carburetor. Weird. Yeah, I I I love doing that sort of thing. Yeah. You also mess around and build and design RC cars like a remote control Fast remote control gas powered cars. Yeah, I've been making them for a long, long time since '92, I believe it was. Uh, what got you started in that? I just always been fascinated by uh, to make something run with a radio, uh, control it with a radio. Yeah, and uh, I used to buy them. You know, uh, Associated made them in California. Yep, used to buy them, but I decided I wanted to make. Some of my own. After I quit being crew chief, uh, I just uh, wanted to do something. So that's what I started doing. It was making my own, designing my own and making it. Yeah, and y'all would go run nationals and stuff like that, right? Yeah. You'd oh, go yeah. compete. It, it, uh, I always had a world champion driver driving my car, and uh, <laughs> I, I guess it never lost. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. How about that, Mike? Is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They run like 70 miles an hour. Didn't he give you one? Don't a you couple. Have... Yeah. He built a few for me. Yeah. Wow. He's fixed one too. Oh, you, yeah. you sent him you one back didn't with take a, care sent him one back with the right front going. <laughs> he fixed it. Had to put it on the front end plate. He did. <laughs> <laughs> back on the jig. <laughs> That's funny. Do you, uh, I've got to ask you, um, uh, you know, opinions about like kind of current day NASCAR, you know, especially with we're going to this next gen car. Um, do you have strong opinions? Especially, I want to ask you because, you know, you guys have been in the sport for 71 years. I mean, you have to have a sense of adaptability through all these, you know, evolutions of race cars and everything else. So this next gen car, what are your opinions of this? Where are, is this a, I'm curious if this is a thing that equalizes the competition, like some suggest, or if this ends up becoming a, you know, additional burden for a team like Wood Brothers, like what, what's your take on it? Well, you know, I, 
I would have to, you know, uh, uh, be back into it, setting cars up uh, to see how it worked, like A-frames on the on the rear suspension and all. It's got a different effect than than a, a straight axle swinging. Uh, uh, but uh, I'm all for anything that makes a crowd come in, right? Yeah. Uh, anything, anything for NASCAR. You know, if you throw off on NASCAR, a lot of times you hear people throwing on NASCAR that's actually, that's their way of life. You're throwing off on your own uh, sponsor. I mean, yeah. you're throwing on NASCAR, you're throwing off on your way of life. Yes. You know, so... I'm all for it being as good as it can be. Yeah. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. Like in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the next 50 years, what is it that uh, we, the people that are going to carry on this sport, what do you think that we need to be focused on the most to, to, to keep this thing thriving in the most popular form of American motorsports? Well, I think you need to look at safety uh, as much as anything. Uh, uh, you know, if, if you need to slow them down or whatever it takes to to make them where they don't have all these crashes, uh, you know, this uh, this allowing you to bump, you know, is uh, gets in a dangerous stage. You know, you you bump somebody and shove them ahead, that's good, but if you bump him and spin him out, that ain't too good. Yeah. <laughs> I miss the days when there used to be a little bit of room between the cars at Daytona and Talladega. You had guys that just had faster cars, you know, and they were the ones you were chasing all day long. Yeah, but, I liked it whenever, uh, uh, you know, back when it was uh, unrestricted. Exactly, yeah. You just sit back out and run your own race, and then you decide to come up, that thing would just come right up and, and – uh, and blow you off. Well, since you're a motor guy, what would be the way to get back unrestricted? Would build a smaller engine. What would you do? I uh, put one of them small carburetors I got on. Yes, <laughs> 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 small. Half size carburetor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Leonard, it's been uh, it's been pretty awesome to to be able to spend some time just to see you, buddy. It's been a long time. Well, I I miss you uh, all the time, and you know I used to come to you before the race. Yes. And, you know it's real easy for a driver to get down on the self when they're not running. I mean, pretty soon you get to thinking, well, you know, is it a little bit of me, you know? Uh, sure. But uh, uh, you just gotta. I mean, you know, when you when you're running a race. And you're setting up there leading the race for 100 laps. All of a sudden, you go to the back. Did you just forget how to drive? Yeah. No. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, when the car changes, you know, I, I listen to the radio a lot. Uh, a lot of the drivers, Paul Menard and all them, uh, when they wasn't complaining, they was moving forward. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when the car is not right to go into the back, I mean, uh, going backwards, you know. But all those guys listen to the radio. If the car is right, they, they come home, uh, move forward. Yeah. Well, I've always uh, admired you, man, uh, just because of your, uh, you know, your, your place in the sport and the legacy that the Wood Brothers have. But you started coming up to the car and saying hey to me every – week at the racetrack and you'd always say he always said hold a pretty wheel yeah and uh, that meant the world to me because um you know you're a legend another person that's done something similar to that was uh ray evernham like after uh 
finished racing, somehow, some way, me and Ray Evernham's friendship just got bigger and bigger. And um, that means a lot to me because, like Ray, um, you know, you're you're a legend in the sport. And when you would have time to come say hey to me or spend any time talking to me, I didn't know why Leonard Wood from the Wood Brothers was doing that, but it made me feel great. And I want to thank you for being uh, such a great guy, such a great friend. And uh, we, you know, we're just in all of your of your life and your career, buddy. So. Well, I, I thank you so much. And, uh, you know, I always enjoy uh, – I, I, it always pleases me to, when a guy does a good job to compliment him. And uh, to the to younger guys, I've been doing this 70-plus years, and it just makes me feel good when I see a guy doing exceptionally well. And, you know, you had the same talent as your dad at Daytona. Now, I could tell that, and, and you know it too. Uh, he, he come from uh, as an all-star, I mean, a, a, a Bush, Bush clash. He started last and come to the front in one lap. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> and you had that same talent down there, and you did at the other places. And I know I, you, you wasn't running as good as you wanted to at, at certain times, and I kept telling you, that uh, it wasn't you, yeah. and uh, so you win big time. I believe it was at Michigan or somewhere. And I told you I hate it when I'm wrong, <laughs> not when I'm right. Yeah. <laughs> yep. But uh, I always enjoyed coming up to you, and I appreciate your friendship and your dad's. Me and your dad was great friends. Uh, we used to uh, hug each other a little bit, and he found out I had a broke rib, and I didn't know that he knew. And he comes up and going to give me a big old bear hug, and I'm screaming and hollering. Boy, <laughs> boy does it. But yeah, uh, we used to pick at each other a lot. And uh, I enjoyed your whole family. Uh, uh, you got a great uh, from Ralph to yourself. And uh, I haven't seen you, your kids yet. Yeah, uh, I know. We got to get all y'all together. Yeah, looking forward to it. And this has been uh, one of my favorite uh interviews of all time <laughs> <laughs> well we appreciate that yeah i was gonna tell you i had a whole lot of stories but being 86 years old i forgot them all yeah hey <laughs> that's why we have people that's, back that's right that's we why we we'll have back have we you. got more time yeah we'll have to have you come see us again all right buddy we appreciate you thank you so much i enjoyed it so much leonard wood on the dale jr download hello We are live now. Hey, everybody. It's Dale Jr. Uh, here for the Dale Jr. Download and Dirty Mo Media. Thanks for supporting Dirty Mo Media's social media handles and our YouTube page. Send all your friends to check us out. Uh, you guys that are here, y'all know we got a lot of great content, so please share it. Um, this is the Ask Jr. part of the show. Uh, brought to you by Xfinity, proud premier partner of NASCAR, Mike. That's true. And I'm a customer. That's true. Absolutely. A paying customer. So, uh Happy with the service. Uh, so thanks for everything Infinity does for our sport. So let's get to these questions. All right. First question coming from Eric Edmonds. The Cup Series added the carousel at Sonoma two years ago. Do you think it's time they added the boot at Watkins Glen for more passing opportunities? I've always thought that it'd be cool for uh, NASCAR to run the boot. I don't know uh, what, what the drivers and, and teams and all feel about that. But the only problem with that is we run into a situation like at Road 
America where we're now going to have five minute laps under caution and that's uh, not very appealing for sure. So maybe lengthening the course creates more problems than we even realize. So probably not a good idea. I thought it was a great idea for a long time, but after Road America, maybe not. Next question from Daniel Reeves. Uh, he recently watched the I Am Athlete interview. Do you th- really think that Lewis Hamilton would do good in NASCAR? Do you see that as a landing point for him after F1? I, I don't think that this, uh, he's going to come to NASCAR. I think that once he's done, I think once a driver like that gets to the end of the road, they're, they got other things in their life they want to do. He might surprise us. You know, Jimmy's an, an anomaly where he goes and tries to create, recreate his whole, you know, this whole new version of himself as an IndyCar driver, and that's a tough, tough thing to do at that point in your life. So I think that a guy as successful as Lewis, you know, goes and relaxes and enjoys himself and finds other things that he's, you know, maybe there's other things he's passionate about that he starts putting more time into. Maybe he becomes a broadcaster. I don't know. You know, I really don't know what he ends up doing. All right. Kevin from Virginia, he's been to two races in 2021, and he's noticed an infusion of more families and children and new fans to NASCAR. Do you have any ideas how to keep them coming back to grow the fan base? You know, honestly, I think just their experience is going to do that. I've always felt like if you got a, if you got somebody who's never been to a race – and I get that question a lot. It's like, where do I take my friend who's never been? I always usually say Bristol, uh, the night race, uh, the Daytona 500, Martinsville. I never think beyond that because I know that once they're there and they go through that whole process, that's going to take care of itself. You know, as long as they have a great experience, see a fun race, see other people around them that they can relate to and are, you know, everyone there is like-minded in the, in the fact that they're there, they have a good time, they're there to have fun, they're there to cheer on the race. The thing about being at a race is there's not a home field advantage, right? You don't go, when you go to a Panthers game, most of the people there are in Panthers gear, right? You're looking around, and it's obvious to you that you got a lot of people that are doing the same thing you're doing, right? At a race, it's a little different. You might sit next to a driver, somebody who pulls for a different driver, right? And so it's a little bit of a unique experience for the, a NASCAR fan versus what we get when we go to uh, Major League Baseball or NFL. Hopefully that they hopefully they go there and they are they enjoy the environment they enjoy the food and the noise and the smells and the sounds and I I've never even doubted that that would do it I've never doubted that that experience at a race was gonna turn I never thought for a minute that that was not gonna do it not gonna that was gonna turn somebody off right I mean if you go to a race a night race at Bristol and you and you and the race is over and it and you you go you know what I don't think I need this again <laughs> I mean it's, it's just not for you you know but most of the time you know you get just getting them there was going to be enough to lock them in Does that making sense mm-hmm. yeah totally and then now that the midway is kind of back open and thriving now like I saw they've been doing tweet ups again yeah and you like got that, tra- there's a more of an experience now yeah the tracks have different you know. The tracks all provide a different experience, like the garage area, the access to the garage area, the fan zones. Each one is unique in its own way. Each track tries to, each track tries to separate itself from the others and, and provide unique entertainment, concerts, 
all those things. So I think that that at track experience always is delivered. It's just trying to get people to go, right? Get them, convince them to make the, make the, make the effort to be there. All right. Next question from John. What's your favorite summertime jam music that is not the fruit spread? Got a, do you have a summer playlist? Man, right now I have been listening to, there's a radio station that I've been listening to and it's called Chuck FM, W-A-V-F 101.7. And they play everything. And when I say everything, I mean, I pretty much mean everything. Not everything, but they play everything. That's their slogan. But it's kind of mostly late 70s rock, any Billboard Top 100 from the 80s, some 90s. Wow. I'm super... The, the heck with the 80s. Dude, I am super nostalgic for some reason right now in this in the last several months. And so anything's like late 70s and 80s, I'm totally into it, especially music. You think that started just in the last couple months? <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> I'm totally into Your it. Your whole life. Okay. Well... But that would be, if that's what they play, that's your radio station, yes. no doubt. That, I found that my radio station. Yeah. Chuck FM. Chuck FM. So I listen to, what is it, Terrestrial? Yeah. So yeah. I Terrestrial listen to, Radio. I listen to Terrestrial Radio. That right there, haven't heard that in many, uh, many years. So there's nothing better. So, you know, we, I got iTunes. I got playlists. I got all the – sometimes that is just too easy. Sometimes I enjoy – having to sit through a few freaking commercials that I'm not going to listen to mm. and the authenticity of that. Right. And how it reminds you of the past or the history or your, or your, your childhood. Maybe when I am going to go sit on the beach under an umbrella with a beer and watch Isla play in the sand, I don't want to shuffle a playlist because I, because watching my kid plays in the sand reminds me of being a kid playing in the sand. And when I was a kid playing in the sand, I was listening to, the radio station. <laughs> and commercials. And commercials. And the surprise. And it's a surprise, yeah. Well, which most streaming apps are now, you know, surprises. Like, I, that's what I loved about Pandora and, and Spotify is, is it's going to play what it wants to play. Yeah, sometimes just creating that playlist and pushing the button is just too easy. I want. He wants that Western Sizzling commercial. Yeah. <laughs> I can appreciate that song when it comes on, right? I don't know what it is about that. There's got to be a better way to articulate it. It's a romance it. to it. That is, an that is one heck of an endorsement it. for a terrestrial radio, to be honest with I you. I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I've never even heard that, but that, I think I could subscribe to that. I could say, yeah, nostalgia. Yeah. All right. That's all we have today, guys. Every week, it's over. I don't even like it to end. Can we just do a whole entire uh, podcast that's just Ask Junior? Wow, that would be a big-ass junior. You know, it does go by fast, I will give you that. It goes by like Xfinity X-Fi does. Yeah, Xfinity X-Fi is fast, but it's more than that. It's reliable, powerful, and that means everyone can do more of what they love with fast internet. That's the truth. You and your crew can stay connected like we do with Wi-Fi coverage that delivers the speed your devices need. Hey, and remember, everyone, keep the questions coming. We love them. We love this Ask Junior segment. You send your questions to at Xfinity Racing on Twitter. Big thanks to Xfinity, proud premier partner of NASCAR. Last call. 
All right, last call, episode 349. 349 episodes. Is that really how many that y'all have done? I mean, is this counting the ones you did where you hosted it without me? Yeah, So going back to 2013. Seems like we've had way more than 349. It does? Are y'all missing some? Well, it feels like that's way more These than are what? like all the ones that me and Tyler Overstreet did together. Those yeah. are factored into 349? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, doesn't seem like, seems like we've had, you know, a thousand episodes at this point. We do have a JRM employee competing in the summer games. That's How about right. that? That's Tyler right. Justice Page is competing in the double-handed sailing. All That's right. right. No, no, it's all right. Tyler Justice Page was an intern here. He was an engineer, an intern. And he's hoping once the Olympics are over to come back and work full time. But uh, he's, you know, taking the summer to get ready for the Olympics. Yeah. I guess that's something we let employees do. I don't know. I didn't know that. It's I didn't pretty know that's cool what handbook. he does, too. We just let you take the summer off to get ready for the Olympics. Double handed sailing. It's insane. Tyler Justice Page. That's Remember right. those two things because they are in the Olympics. Can we say he's representing JRM? I mean, kind of, kind of representing JRM. Is there an anthem? I think JRM. (laughs) Is there a JRM anthem? I think JRM is being represented in the Olympics. What if? Do do we want him to wear a JRM shirt? That's the question. I think he's Dirty Mo Media. Yeah, he's actually not on Team USA. (laughs) That's throwing me for a loop. (laughs) (laughs) What team's he on? America Samoa. Oh, hey. Yeah. Hey, all right. Yeah, I asked him. I said, so like, if you were to win the gold. Do you know the words to your national anthem? And he said, nope, but <laughs> I'll learn them. <laughs> uh, and he also said, I said, who do we need to hate? I mean, like, h- educate us. Who do we need to hate on uh, for uh, this Olympic viewing? And he said, Spain is really good, mm-hmm. and Australia is really good. And I said, those are two teams that we will hate. That's interesting. Yeah. Oh, Paul Mars is going to be pissed. And he said, we're also rooting for 10-knot wins or less. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> so y'all remember that, everybody. Ten not wins or less. So I, 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 you threw me for a loop there when you, when you chose. Uh, ha, ha, who are we going to hate? So you mean who? We sh- who should we pull? Who's the toughest competitor? That's what I meant. Okay, yeah. I, I didn't know what the heck you were talking about. Like who are we hating? Why are we hating someone? Yeah, yeah, that was that. That was aggressive, wasn't it? Yes. All right. Yeah. Okay. Who, who, who shall you? we? Who shall we hope not win? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, we're going to be pulling. Who's the toughest competitors? Spain and who? Australia. Australia. Yeah. Ah, man, it's going to be hard to pull against Australia. You know what you'd love? Yeah. The ingenuity, as we call it, the creativity oh, that goes into the boat. Oh, there's a lot of that going on. Well, don't throw this man under the bus just yet. Yeah. Let's talk about that after he uh, competes. No, he says the other teams. Okay. Yeah. Well, see, yeah, I can. I'd run them through the templates. All right. <laughs> All right, I don't even remember what number that was. 349? Yeah, 349. Okay, episode 349. Hope you guys have a great week. We'll see you next week. Check out Dirty Mo Media on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Dirty Mo.